You know, church, we're experiencing unprecedented times. I mean, you know this. And we're stepping into a future that feels a lot different than the one we imagined just even two weeks ago. But in Luke 9, verses 18 through 62, we find Jesus asking us to do the same thing. I mean, to step into a future much different than the one we even imagined. So the result, according to Jesus, is that we will actually save our lives. Now, the pathway he lays out, it isn't easy. And according to Jesus, it's going to cost us everything. Well, what could possibly be worth everything? Let's explore Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with him in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And he was saying, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the crowd, uh, cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, oh teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and, and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. 
the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me uh, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, oh, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we, we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. The one who is not against you is, is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And finally, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first uh, say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We've taken a large chunk of scripture here, but I think it's important. I think you'll see how connected it really is. There's three things uh, I pray we see this morning. First, the question we're uh, left to answer. Second, your full and undivided attention. And then third, the decision we're left to make. So first, the question we're left to answer. You know, Jesus, at the beginning of this text, beginning in verse 18, Jesus is in prayer. And, and it's easy to really miss or neglect the priority of prayer in the life of Jesus. But man, it's there. And it's like a thread that just holds everything together. It was in this place of prayer that Jesus found strength and joy and int- intimacy with the Father. And we need to learn something about that from Jesus. And it was during this time of prayer that Jesus actually paused and then asked the disciples what the popular opinion was uh, uh, in the day concerning him, concerning his identity. And, and, and they report to Jesus, well, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, obviously. And some say oh, that you're Elijah, rooted in the prophet Malachi chapter 4, that Elijah would come. And others say that, oh, you're one of the prophets of old, risen from the dead. And, and so basically, what they're saying is, Jesus, there's a lot of opinion out there about you. You know, this was a time of political and religious tension, for sure. There was growing anticipation, just filled with expectations of a coming Messiah, a promised deliverer or at least looking for his forerunner, the one who would go before this Messiah who was to come. And the people, I mean, like us, they had hopes and dreams. They had longings in their hearts. I mean, of course they did. They were under the oppressive arm of Rome. And so many had this idea in their heads of what the Messiah would do and and be like, but it was shaped by their dreams more than anything else. They had a, a mold, we could say, that they were trying to fit the Messiah into. I wonder if that's not the same today. I think it is. 
Ask people today what they think about Jesus, and there's a lot of opinions still. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, it's as if Jesus is saying, all right, enough about everyone else and what everyone else thinks. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Have you ever been caught off guard by a question that you thought was directed at a large group, but then you you realize, oh no, I'm being asked. And maybe if you're a student and and you've been in class and your teacher is asking a question and you you think you're safe (laughs) until she says, "Uh, Jude, or, you know, whatever. What about, what do you say? What do you think the answer is? And you feel those butterflies in your stomach and you're just like, uh, 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 um, Oh, okay, this is getting real. It's getting real for the disciples. I mean, the answer to this question, it actually changes the future of the person answering it every time, every time. Now, who is Jesus was actually a question the disciples had asked before. Do you remember the storm? They were in the boat and they saw Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves and they're just like, who is this? I mean, it was the right question to ask after seeing something like that. But now they're being asked by Jesus himself, who do you say I am? And I imagine this long pause after Jesus asks the question. Maybe you could hear crickets in the background. And, and then all of a sudden, Peter kind of looks around and he speaks up for the rest. And he says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. And we're used to the name Jesus Christ. We're used to that. But Christ is a title. It's not his last name. He is the Christ. Peter and the disciples with him, they're in unison here, and they're saying, Jesus, you're the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God who will usher in the kingdom of God, the rule of God. That's who you are. We believe that. You would expect Jesus to say, Yes, Peter, you got it right. High-fiving him, you know, you got it right. Come on, let's go. Let's go tell the world. It's not what Jesus says at all. Look at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. What? You know, Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, oh no, you've got it wrong, Peter. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the divine deliverer you've been hoping for. No, he doesn't say that. I mean, Peter got it right. Jesus is the Christ. And, and yes, he came to deliver, but not how the people or even the, the disciples in this moment actually imagined. And, and that's why Jesus really, they get it right, but Jesus pushes the pause button and says, okay, listen, don't, don't tell anyone, not yet. No, there's there's, there's going to be a day when you're going to tell everyone, but, but not yet. They, had still, they still had some misconceptions and some, you know, that mold that they had tried to force Jesus into, that we all try to force Jesus into, that had to be shattered. So Jesus goes on uh, from identity. Uh, Jesus' identity is quickly, it just leads into a clear declaration of his mission. Well, what does he say after telling them, don't tell anyone? Verse 22, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he goes from identity, this is who I am. Jesus is saying, you got it right, Peter. But he goes right to mission. This is why I came. This is where I'm headed, Peter. Disciples, 
I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must be raised. So he moves from identity to mission, and then he goes into the call, the call on those who would actually come after him or follow him. And he, he presents these non-negotiables in verse 23. Oh, what's he say? He says, you must, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross daily, and you must follow me. And then in verse 24, whoever would save his life or try to hold on to his life will actually lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then in verse 25, he says, now go ahead and make the comparison. Make the comparison. Let's say that you get it all. You get the house of your dreams. You have all the cars that you want. You've got the, uh, the drop-dead gorgeous wife and the, the 3.5 kids and the picket fence and the, the, the job that you always wanted. You've got thousands of followers on Facebook. I don't know. Just to say you, you have it all. Everyone loves you. Let's just say you have it all, but you lose yourself. Jesus is saying, what good is it? What good is it? Make the comparison. And actually, Jesus does this quite often in his ministry. He's calling those who want to follow him to to surrender, to, to give up, to make the comparison. You want to run after the things of this world, or do you want to run after me? Is this what you want to live for, or are you going to live for me? Am I going to be priority or are these things going to be priority? Make the comparison. So he's, he's uh, calling the disciples, he's calling us today to make this comparison. Compared to everything and everyone else, we're called to love Jesus the most. And so this is about total allegiance to Jesus as king. I mean, above all things. It's all or nothing. And it's an invitation to stop trusting in ourselves and to start trusting in his loving rule. Church, I can't think of a a better time for us to evaluate what we're trusting in, who we're trusting in. The cross is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. And it symbolizes our willingness to give up our lives, our lives that are centered on ourselves. To give up everything else that might be fighting to take center stage where Jesus belongs. It's really a war of the heart. In Luke 12, verse 34, he talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart is the seat of our affections. It's it's the control center of our lives. In Scripture, it's not just talking about this beating heart in our chest. It's talking about the control center, uh, just the center of our being, who we are at our core. Where your treasure is, there you are. What do you treasure? Is Jesus your treasure? Maybe you're saying, I want him to be. That's good. Maybe you're saying, he was and he needs to be. It's good that you see that. Is Jesus your treasure? Jesus is moving us from self-preservation at all costs to embracing his will no matter the cost. You see what he's saying? He's calling us to die to ourselves. Died of self-preservation. And we need to hear that now, in this day and age, in this unique season that we're in, to die to ourselves and our, this idea of just, just isolation and self-preservation at all cost and embrace his will no matter what the cost. It's letting go of self-rule, replacing it with obedience to and dependence on Jesus and his rule. And he talks about dying 
daily, taking up your cross. I mean, this, this method of execution, uh, crucifixion, it's, it's a, again, a metaphor for discipleship. It's daily deaths. Daily. Take up your cross daily. What's this mean? Well, these daily deaths confront our pride and our comfort, our agenda, our ambition. They call us, it calls us to live as genuine followers day by day, day by day. It, t- you know, taking up your cross, it's, it isn't just one big scary sacrifice and then you're done with it, like giving up a kidney or that, that one time you helped the guy push his car off the road when he broke down. That's not what taking up your cross is about. There, there's daily deaths. It's a recognition that I must die to myself in order to find true life. You know, when I read Jesus' words like this, his teaching, and I, I feel how radical it is, I have to pause and ask, am I following? Do I know how to follow? I mean, I believe that I am. I, I, I claim to be a follower of Jesus, but I think... None of us can just look at this and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what's next? All of us should just be humbled by this and, and really it should cause us to pause and evaluate where are we at? Have we lost view of the radical nature of being a follower of Jesus? Oh, because it's radical. He goes on to say in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me, whoever's ashamed of me, are you ashamed? I remember, you might have heard this, me tell this story before. I remember being at Starbucks and um, the girl, the Starbucks girl on, uh, you know, on the other side of the counter, she said, hey, um, you know, what do you want, blah, blah, blah. She got my drink order. And then she said, man, you look like Lucifer. And I was like, never been told that before. <laughs> Lucifer. I guess at the time there was a, a, a TV show where there was this blonde dude uh, and, and I look like him. I'm sure he was really handsome, square jaw, really good looking guy. I don't know. I've not seen the show. But she said, you look like Lucifer. And I was just, "Ah, this is weird. And I I wanted to just somehow bring Jesus into the conversation. And I I was gripped with fear. I was so afraid of what she would think if I brought up Jesus. And I I didn't say anything about Jesus. But I, I walked away from that thinking, I lost an opportunity. What was I actually, what was going to happen to me? Would she look at me like with a weird look? I mean, she called me Lucifer. She had no shame in that. I asked God to forgive me and I said, please give me another opportunity to be an example, to be a witness, to bring Jesus to others. And he, he has many, many times since then. But I think there are moments where we We are just gripped by fear. Fear of what? Fear of being looked down on. Fear of being dismissed. Fear of being maybe understood. Fear of being rejected. But church, we need to be okay with that as followers of Jesus. Who do you say I am is the starting place. Once you've reached a conclusion to that question, you can move on to the next. Jesus is essentially asking, Do you want to lose yourself? And no one would say, oh yeah, I want to lose myself. Yeah. No one would just say that. Well, Jesus doesn't want you to lose yourself. 
not lose yourself to the world. He wants you to lose yourself to him because in him is life. And, and this isn't simply about knowing what Jesus says or even agreeing with it. It's about believing it and acting on that belief because you can know it. You can even have it memorized. You can agree with it and be like, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I mean, yeah. But do you believe it? And does that belief shape you, shape your actions? Anything worth dying for is actually worth living for. Now think about that. Jesus is worth dying for. And he's calling us to die so that we can really live and live loud. Loud for him. So we've seen this first question, and it's a question that we all need to wrestle with. Who do you say I am? Second, your full and undivided attention. Verse 27 actually transitions us to the next scene uh, where Jesus has, uh, says in verse 27 that some standing there will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then very next scene, verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James. So there's an important transition there. Peter, John, and James are about to see the kingdom of God, or at least the veil will be removed just a little bit. They're going to see a little glimpse of the, the beauty and the splendor of the kingdom, the rule of God through his son, Jesus. And so there's this connection there. Well, Jesus is on a mountain praying again. There's prayer again. And Peter, James, and John are with him. And, and this is known um, as the transfiguration. Now that word just means change or Jesus is transformed in front of their eyes on this mountain. And as I said, the veil is just lifted a bit where they could see a glimpse of his brilliance and glory, a, a glimpse of the coming kingdom. His face changed. His clothes were as bright as lightning. And then with Jesus, Moses and Elijah appear on this mountain. And they're talking about his departure. What in the world? The word is Exodus. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. And, and we're, we're given a little clue in verse 31 as to what this is all about. Verse 31, they appeared to him in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What was he going to accomplish at Jerusalem? Well, he was headed towards Jerusalem to die. This exodus, this departure, would be his death. And they were talking about what Jesus would be accomplishing through his death. And, and I think it actually makes sense. If, if you remember, Moses led Israel through that mighty exodus or departure out of slavery to Egypt. Jesus is going to lead his people through a greater exodus, through a greater slavery, a greater departure out of, out of slavery, out of sin, out of shame. And how is he going to do this? How will he accomplish this great exodus? It will be through his death through his death, through his resurrection. So here, we have Moses who represents the law and Elijah who represents the prophets. And Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything that the law and prophets had spoken of, it was, it was to be fulfilled in Christ. And actually, Jesus talks to the disciples about that after his resurrection, before his ascension in Luke 24. I encourage you to read Luke 24. It's a powerful chapter of fulfillment. The law and the prophets will be fulfilled. And so Peter and James, they're, I love this, they've got heavy eyes, they're just sleepy. And, and Peter says something, he blurts something out. Oh, it's good to, for us to be here. Let's get three tabernacles. Uh, we got three people, Moses and Elijah. He's just kind of going, doesn't even know what he's saying. I just love that. 
And then this cloud envelops them. And the cloud, it reminds us, remember that cloud in the desert that was with Israel when they were going through the desert for 40 years? Symbolic of God's presence. Well, here it is again, God's presence. And it, it envelops them. And God the Father could have said anything in this moment. And what does he say? What does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to who? To Jesus. The Father brings this full-on affirmation and this joyful declaration. Look with me in verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son. Oh, it's uh, reminiscent of Jesus' baptism where this full-on affirmation came. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Wow. What's he saying? The Father is saying this. Give him your undivided attention. Your full and undivided devotion. Give it to Jesus. Give it to him. I mean, that's what discipleship is. It's someone who follows their teacher and imitates their example, listens to their teaching, watches their actions. And, and discipleship as a follower of Jesus, it begins with repentance, owning up to the fact that we are sinful and broken. It's a change. Repentance is a change of, of mind. It's a, it's a change of direction. And it's recognizing our need for a savior. And that's the that's the starting point. And it really begins with answering the question, who do you say I am? And then recognizing our need for Christ. Well, after this mountaintop experience, they come down into the darkness of the day, the heaviness of the day, and they encounter a man who has a child who's tormented by an evil spirit. Now, Jesus displays kingdom power over this evil spirit. And while everyone's in awe of what Jesus just did, he pulls his disciples aside and he says, verse 44. And what's he say? Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Why does he say this? Because this is how victory is to be won. True victory over the powers of darkness will ultimately be defeated through his death, through his resurrection. So he says, let these words sink into your ears. Parents, you ever say that to your kids or something similar? Like, hey, listen up. Don't forget this. This is so important. And then they wander off and you're like, yep, they just forgot it. Like they literally just forgot it. And that's what happened with the disciples. They don't get it. It doesn't sink. Instead, the next few scenes, it's kind of humorous. I mean, they, they start to fight about who's the greatest and they try to stop a man casting out demons because Oh, he's not a part of their crew. And then when they come to the Samaritan village, I mean, they want to call fire down from heaven like the old prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. And Jesus rebukes them. Oh, they're all mixed up. Their ambitions are exposed. But aren't you thankful for grace that there's room for mixed up disciples? Listen to him is reverberating in our ears. It should be. Give him your full and undivided attention. And that leaves us with point three the decision we're all left to make. It began with a question. And then it began with the instruction of the Father himself to give Jesus your full and undivided attention. And then finally, we see this decision we're all left to make. Verses 57 through 62, 
It, it really lays out, once again, the radical nature of being a disciple of Jesus, a follower. I want to read it again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? No, this path isn't easy. It's not comfortable. You sure you want in? You sure? You know, many are willing to follow Jesus until they find out the details. What's really involved? Many say they want to follow Jesus. That is, they also bring their own conditions. Kind of they're, they're bringing the fine, they haven't read the fine print of what it means to follow Jesus. And so they're, they're bringing their own conditions. Their own conditions are attached. Well, verse 59, we see uh, the call of Jesus is one where he he should have priority over all things. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, the the man said to Jesus, oh Lord, let me first go bury my father. Let me first go bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. And we think, man, is Jesus being harsh? No, listen, he is just making very clear that he is to have priority over all things. No half-heartedness here. And then another says, hey, I'll follow you, but first let me go, you know, say goodbye to my family. First let me, uh, no, no, there is no but first. It's a radical call. None of this half-heartedness. In verse 62, he talks about the plow and, and, and how no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is, is, is worthy of the kingdom of God. What's he saying here? I mean, the plow just will quickly shift off course. Quickly shift off course. I mean, I'm not a farmer, but you, you, you plow. Could you tell I'm not a farmer? I'm not a farmer. But if you plow, apparently if you look away, you're going to get off course and it's going to affect um, how, how straight things are. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to keep your eyes fixed. Uh, someone plowing a field, I, I imagine they've got to keep their eyes fixed on the horizon. Yeah. This reminds me of a time when I was in the Keys with a young adult group and we went out snorkeling. And it was storming. It was really high winds and um, waves. Horrible time to snorkel. But we paid for it and we were doing it. And everyone wanted to. Everyone got sick. Everyone was sick. People are like in the fetal position on this boat just crying. You know, throwing up over the side. Everyone's sick, but not me. Oh no. People are crying at my feet. Curled up in a ball. And I've got my eyes fixed on the horizon. Because I heard somewhere that if you just look at the horizon and don't take your eyes off of it, that you won't get sick. And it worked. It worked for me. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We truly do as disciples of Christ. Now, you might be tempted to look back. What helps you stay the course? What is going to help you stay the course? Jesus' call is a radical one. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's not beating around the bush, is he? He's not, he's not tiptoeing around the topic. He's calling you to follow him. And this isn't about trying harder. It's about surrender. This isn't about behavior modification It's about heart transformation. This isn't about just dipping your toes in the shallow end of the pool. It's about jumping into the deep end. And for some of you listening to me and watching, it is time and you know it. You're battling with some fears of what it's going to require of you and what it's going to mean. Make the comparison today. 
Jesus is asking you to step into a future much different than the one you imagined. But true life will never come, never come through self-preservation. It only comes through joyful surrender to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Will you give him your full attention? And will you follow him? That's the question. That's the question. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you, continue to fix your eyes on him. If you are not a follower of Jesus, follow him today where there is life. Self-preservation, self-rule, it doesn't lead to true life. True life is offered to you today. Make the comparison. And let's move forward into a future that though we, we might have some questions about and concerns about, is certain. And, and, and a future that he knows all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. You know all our doubts and fears about where you're asking us to go and what you're asking us to do. Jesus, you know all about our fear and doubt. Help us right now to see the surpassing greatness and value of what it means to follow you. Help us to make the comparison and to see that to lose our life for your sake is really to save it. Father, I pray for those even now within the sound of my voice and watching this, for those who are wrestling with what it means to follow you. Oh God, that by your spirit you'd meet them and that they would waste no time owning up to their sinfulness and looking to Jesus as Savior. That they would make it real today that the call to follow Jesus would be, they, they, they would, we would all see that as a call to freedom and joy place of salvation and rest, the place we were always meant to be. God, do this in our hearts. Do this in the hearts of our friends listening today. In Jesus' name, amen.